September 27th, uh, 2015, uh, was a joy-filled day for many of us in this room who experienced the planting, the beginning of Beacon Community Church. Uh, I remember just that afternoon after our first service as a church community, just experiencing genuine joy of serving the Lord with a group of people who just wanted to see God's work continue in this community. Four weeks later, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive kind of cancer. And I remember talking to Laura that afternoon and just feeling a collision of emotions. The joy of serving Jesus colliding with the deep discouragement of fear and potential loss coming together all at once. How do we process discouragement as we seek to serve the Lord in this life? Because many of us know this collision of emotions, joy and sorrow, blessing and heartache. How do we process discouragement as we seek to serve the Lord? I want to investigate that question with you this morning through our time together. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Ezra 4 on page 391. Page 391. And if you're here today and you need a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, in the lobby, there are three bookshelves. The one closest to the restrooms, uh, there are Bibles there, black hardback cover Bibles. Please take one. If you have a friend who needs one, grab one for that friend as well. This morning, we continue our sermon series in the book of Ezra called Return from Exile. Return from Exile. Let's read uh, Ezra chapter 4. I'll read the whole chapter. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the, to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mid Mithradath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king, 
Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to have gone, who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews of Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work, the house of God, that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. By way of review, we see in Ezra chapters 1, 2, and 3 lots of good news, don't we? In Ezra chapter 1, the king of the superpower of the time, Persia, King Cyrus issues this decree and allows the people that he held captive, the Israelites, to return and go back to their homeland and reestablish their worship there. What wonderful good news. And then in chapter 2 of Ezra, we see return is happening. All these returnees listed in a record. It's happening. What the Lord had done to stir Cyrus to make the decree was unfolding. The, the returnees go. And then last week, Alex Grant preached for us Ezra chapter 3, and we see worship beginning to be reestablished and rebuilt. The first thing they do is put the altar, the place of sacrifice, the means of forgiveness for God's people at that point in history is, is reworked, and they have a place of worship, and they begin to lay the foundation of the temple, and that's all we're told, and chapter 3 ends. So we have good news encouragement after encouragement. And then Ezra chapter 4 arrives, and here we have the wet blanket. Upon all that good news comes the, the bad news. Ezra 4 
is deep discouragement colliding with joy and excitement over what the Lord has done thus far through the book of Ezra. Ezra 4 is a wet blanket kind of passage that we must process because it helps us process this reality in our own lives, the, the collision of emotions between joy and deep discouragement. How does the author of Ezra invite us to move forward when this collision of emotions, joy and discouragement happens? How do we process discouragement as we seek to follow and serve the Lord? The central idea of this message is this. Opposition is to be expected among God's people seeking to serve God's purposes. Opposition is to be expected for God's people seeking to do God's work. It's, it's part and parcel of following the Lord is difficulty, opposition. I want to break this up into two parts, this long chapter in two parts. The reality of opposition to the work of the Lord, we see that in verses 1 through 5. The reality of opposition in the work of the Lord. And then the second part, opposition is not unique to you. There's generations of it in the scripture. Opposition is not unique to you or to me. And so we'll cover this kind of historical digression or historical parentheses that we see in verses 6 through 23. So first, the reality of opposition in the work of the Lord. Again, we see this in verses 1 through 5. Let's reread those together. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. So we're introduced here to Israel's adversaries, they're called in verse 1, but they seem friendly at first, don't they? They, they seem to be offering a, a kind hand. Hey, let us build with you. Well, the adversarial nature of these folks is not revealed until later on in verse 4. Who are these adversaries who are already occupying the land that the Israelites have returned to, their homeland? Who, their people are already there. Who are they? These are resettled people, resettled foreign peoples from foreign nations in the ancient Near East. People that Assyrian kings had settled in the land of Israel, beginning in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom collapsed. And so this is where a little bit of Old Testament history is going to help us understand the book of Ezra. You have two kingdoms that unfortunately divided after Solomon. So the kingdom was united under David and under Solomon, but after Solomon, his unwise son Rehoboam and his unwise leadership, there was a fracture in the kingdom. There were 12 tribes, 10 of them in the north consolidated and formed the northern kingdom, and the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The two southern kingdoms were Judah and Benjamin. They consolidated their capital city in Jerusalem. And so as you read the book, First and Second Kings, you, you, you read these kind of back and forth between kingdoms. That's what it is. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, 
oftentimes fighting one another. Both of them get sacked. The northern kingdom gets sacked first, 722 BC, by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom gets sacked second, 586 BC, by the Babylonians. And so that's a little bit of history here. And the people, these adversaries that are currently occupying the land of Israel, were the people that the Assyrians had repopulated. So one of the tactics of the Assyrians to keep people at bay that they conquered as their kingdom is expanding, what they did was they resettled people in lands that they conquered. So they would deport people, send them to land that they did not grow up in, that they weren't familiar with, as a way to dilute culture. Why would they do that? Because if you dilute culture, there's less of a threat of some national dominant cultural response coming and attacking the Assyrians. So if you just mix them all up, there's less of a solidarity and an identity. They dilute various cultures, and that's what they seek to do in, in the land of Israel. They put all kinds of people there. For example, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, the king of Assyria, that is Sargon. How about that for a name? That, that belongs in like the, the Twin Towers, the, the Lord of the Rings. King Sargon of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, from Safar, Safaravim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Assyria and lived in the cities thereafter. They're repopulating the, 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 the land of Israel with all kinds of foreigners as a way to dilute culture and to stamp out any national response that could that could come over the years as people kind of gather around their cultural, religious identity. So that's who these people are. Not Israelites. They're from all over. Then they've grown accustomed to having things their way in the land, and they don't like the news of the returnees coming and reestablishing their culture and their worship and their way of life. And so this was the way that the Assyrians did things. And we see it throughout this passage Sargon did it initially in 722 when he conquered the northern kingdom. And then Esarhaddon, this guy who's mentioned here in the first three verses, he did it as he came to power. And then his successor, Osnapper, who we see in verse 10, all these bizarre names, these are successive Assyrian kings who repopulated the people of Israel, Israel with all kinds of foreigners as a way to dilute the cultural identity there. That's what we see. Well, the Assyrians ultimately fall to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians ultimately fall to the Persians. And so you're kind of seeing these sweeping movements of superpowers throughout the ages, all right? The Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians. That's, take, that, that's the superpower of the day here in the book of Ezra. So these are the adversaries. They're foreign people who care nothing for the way of life and the way of worship in Israel. Notice how the leaders of Israel respond to this request. Hey, we'll build with you. Well, what does Zerubbabel, the governor of the Jews, say and Jeshua, the priest? We read in verse 3, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. These leaders of the Jews wisely see through this deceitful invitation, this, this deceitful offer of help, don't they? 
they know these occupants of the land will seek to undermine their rebuilding efforts at every turn. So they say, no, thank you. You have nothing to do with us in building this house of worship. Well, after receiving this firm no, what did the occupants of the land do? Well, they concoct all manner of schemes to discourage the people of Israel in their work of restoration, don't they? Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, who was after him, king of Persia. This expression here, discourage the people of Judah, literally means to weaken the hands of or to loosen the grip on. So through their deceit, their discouragement, their intimidation, through their threats, they're literally seeking to weaken the hands, the grip of the people of God on the plow of restoration. That's the imagery. That expression we use, keep your hand to the plow, keep it firm. Through their threats and their intimidation, their opposition, that grip is weakening. They're becoming afraid to press on and do the work. Discouragement sets in. Again, through bribery, false accusations, threats, they're literally hiring people to bring false charges against them. Author Derek Kidner fittingly writes, nothing attempted for God will go unchallenged and scarcely will a tactic remain unexplored by the opposition. Let me read that again. Nothing we attempt for God will go unchallenged, and scarcely will a tactic remain unexplored by the opposition. In other words, expect opposition when you seek to do the work of the Lord, and don't be surprised when those who oppose you are creative in their schemes against you. All manner of schemes. Let's think about opposition to the work of God comprehensively. This is a biblical theme that spans scripture. We see it in the Old. We see it in the New Testament. Those who seek to follow and serve the Lord face opposition. Let's think about this theme and do some application here. The Apostle John is very helpful to us in defining sources of opposition that we face as we seek to follow and serve the Lord. He defines these sources of unrighteousness in his gospel and in his shorter letters. John speaks of this triple-headed monster of opposition, or sometimes called the trifecta of unrighteousness. What is that triple-headed monster? The flesh, the devil and his minions, demons, and the world. The flesh, the devil, and his minions, and the world. Let's think about these sources of opposition. The flesh, first of all, our sinful nature. The drive within every human being towards autonomy from God. To have it our own way, to be the captain of our own ship. It exists in the heart of every human being. And yes, if you're a Christian who's been converted to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ... He has dealt a crushing blow to that sinful nature. We're no longer a slave to it, but friends, make no mistake, the battle continues on until we see Jesus face to face. 
I mean, just like D-Day dealt a crushing blow to Axis forces, didn't it? Storming the beaches of Normandy, crushing blow. But the war would wage on for another 11 months until May 8th, 1945. And in the same way, when Christ came, he dealt a crushing blow to our sin. But we battle on in the process of sanctification until we see our Lord Jesus face to face. That's victory day, Jesus day, heavenly day. We know what it is. If you're an honest person here, you understand the battle of the sinful nature, the longings, the cravings to have it our way, to think of self first, to indulge our lusts, our material desires, what we long to look at. Think about how your flesh seeks to oppose, distract, and thwart the work of God in your life. Selfishness. How does your own selfishness impact, thwart, distract you from serving the Lord through your time and your resources extended to other people? All of us daily battle selfishness. Am I going to engage and give the precious gift of time or the precious gift of resources for the sake of the gospel to my neighbor, to an unsaved loved one? Selfishness, it rears its head. The flesh is powerful. Lust and sexual sin, it saps us of our strength in doing meaningful ministry and sharing the gospel. I've met with countless men and women who battle sexual sin and they're laden with guilt. And the thought of even sharing the gospel or engaging in meaningful ministry is just, it's just so far off the farm because they're, they're so laden with guilt over the flesh, the, 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 the battle with the flesh. Fear, how does fear prevent us from opening our mouths and sharing the gospel with a coworker, with a neighbor? Our flesh rears its head. It seeks to oppose and distract and thwart the work of God in our lives. Well, be encouraged. You're no longer a slave to the flesh. You're a slave to Christ. You're a slave to righteousness. Abide in him. Keep your eyes on him. He wins. He wins in the end. And you need to follow him, and you will grow in incremental degrees of obedience in the course of your life. And sometimes it'll feel like one step forward and two backward. We've used this illustration. It's helpful. Our lives as Christians on the pathway of sanctification is like a yo-yo on a person's hand who's going up an escalator. Your overall trajectory is upward towards Christ, but sometimes you're up and down and up and down as you go up the escalator. That's, that's the, we're on the escalator of sanctification, but sometimes this pathway is, oh, I've, I've screwed up again. Eyes on Christ. He wins in the end. He is your master. Keep your eyes on him. So the flesh, the devil and his minions, demons, just, you know, sometimes you hear people say that the devil is tempting me. I want to just help us frame our thinking on this. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not God who is in all places at all times working and moving. No, the, the devil is in one place at one time, but he does deploy his minions in all places, certainly in this fallen world. Remember the story in church history of Martin Luther he throws his ink pot one night against the wall because he sees this vision of what he believed to be the, the, the devil distracting him in his work and in his praying and in his writing. He throws the ink pot against the wall. Get behind me, Satan. Leave me. I think the devil does show up to the Martin Luthers of the world 
who are about to shape generations of Christians to come. But by and large, it's the devil deploying his minions towards people and, and, and temptations, the powers and the principalities. That's often what we mean when we feel, oh, the, the, the devil is tempting. He's, he's, he's at work, but he's not ubiquitous. He, he, he often aims at the, 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 the large players in Christian history. But by and large, he's deploying his, his demons, his understudies. There are real spiritual forces in this world, powers and principalities, powers at work. Ephesians 6 is very clear about these. They pose a definite threat to us and our followership of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're real. And we need to abide in the gospel and all the armor that we have listed in Ephesians 6, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, shoes fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel. All these things are just ways to describe the gospel. Righteousness, salvation, shoes fitted with the gospel. How do you confront the devil and his schemes? You abide in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You rehearse the gospel. You believe the gospel. You sing the gospel. You share the gospel. That is the way that we confront the devil and his minions, is by abiding, being equipped and armored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sources of opposition in our lives, the flesh, the devil. Thirdly, the world. The world, that collective societal system of unrighteousness. You can think of the world as the place where sinful humanity and the devil have their playground, where cultural, societal, political things all kind of concoct and stew together creating and perpetuating unrighteousness. Think of these ideologies just throughout history. The thinking around abortion, the thinking around slavery, the thinking around materialism, all these things were societal, collaborative, collective efforts of unrighteousness that perpetuated an ideology for, for decades and centuries. That's the world, the societal system of unrighteousness that is in league with Satan and our own flesh, opposes the mentality of God, opposes the kingdom of God. And so how do you confront the values of the world, that system of unrighteousness? We take on the mind of the kingdom, the mind of the kingdom of God, his mentality, his values, his truth. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom where the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled, where to be great is to be least of all, to be humble, where sacrifice wins in the end. That is not the way of the world. That's the way of the kingdom of God. Sources of opposition. I know that this is an excursus, but it's helpful. We must know our foes. You must know your foes in this life, or we won't be well-equipped to confront them, will we? The flesh the devil and his minions, and the world. The trifecta of unrighteousness. Know your foes, know their tactics, and counter them with Christ. Nothing attempted for God will go unchallenged, and scarcely will attack it go unexplored by our opposers. Opposition is to be expected by God's people seeking to do God's work. Opposition 
was experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is fitting and understandable that those who seek to follow Jesus will also face opposition. It's not a surprise to us. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, My beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Expectation Management 101 for Christians. Don't be surprised when suffering, the fiery trial, opposition, difficulty, you name it, comes upon you. But rejoice insofar as you're sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. He suffered, he was opposed, and so we who follow him will also suffer and be opposed. And opposition, in fact, in fact draws us closer to the heart of Jesus. Peter's saying, rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Jesus. There is solidarity with Jesus when you suffer. You're getting caught up into the heart of Christ, the tender heart of Christ who empathizes with us when we suffer. You're, in fact, being shaped and molded to be more like him as you suffer well. It draws us closer to Jesus. The reality of opposition in the work of the Lord. Secondly, Opposition is not unique to you or to me. There's a historical nature to this. We see this historical parentheses in verses 6 through 23. It's a digression and a long one at that. This is not entirely clear at, at first glance. We need to do some digging, so just, just bear with me as we think through verses 6 through 23 in Ezra chapter 4. What the author of Ezra does is give us a glimpse of what is to come. From verses 6 through 23, the author of Ezra is referencing things that are going to happen 80 years from the time of what we just read about the temple rebuilding. These things are down the line in the Lord's people's history. But he's referencing them for a purpose. You see, the book of Ezra covers roughly 95 years of history. So in chapter 1, we see the decree of Cyrus. That happened in 539 B.C. And then we see the work of Ezra teaching the people God's law. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah, who we know was there at 445 B.C. 539, 445, I think that that's 96 years. So it covers a period of 96 years. And what the author of Ezra does is he kind of pulls from that 95-year history and kind of sprinkles, and sprinkles those episodes in and writes his, his book. So what he's doing in verses 6 through 23 is actually referencing opposition that comes later during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Notice there's not the discussion in verses 6 through 23 of temple rebuilding. It's about city walls. It's about the infrastructure of the city, gates and the like. The temple has already been built. It was finished in 516. And then later on they did the work of overhauling the city, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the, the gates of the city and the wall around the city. So there's this 90-year history that Ezra's drawing on, and he's, he's pointing us to this future opposition for a reason. He's telling God's people, it's not unique to you. It has happened in the past and it will happen in the future. Opposition is not unique to you. So in verses 6 through 23, we see two instances of opposition that take place many years later. One instance is in verse 6, under Ahasuerus, 
That's the Hebrew name for Xerxes, who ruled 486 to 465 BC. So this is a king of Persia who came after Cyrus, after Darius. He came later, 486 to 465. We see in verse 6, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, that is Xerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. These foreign occupants are always tattletaling back to the king. Okay? They're complaining about the rebuilding of the city. And then the next instance happens in verses 7 all the way through 23. So there's a brief mention of Xerxes and the opposition under his reign. And then there's an extended one from 7, verse 7 through 23 under Artaxerxes, who followed Xerxes. I know this is confusing, but Artaxerxes ruled from 464 to 423. So we see this. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. In other words, multiple letters are written to successive Persian kings complaining about the Lord's work in the promised land. Why is the author of Ezra including this? It's not a unique thing. They ought not think something strange is happening. It happens throughout the generations. Opposition is not unique. There's multiple instances of it. Jesus utilizes the same encouragement for us. The night before he hangs on a cross, he spends extended time with his disciples after the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. And one of the things that Jesus is careful to tell his followers is this. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what the author of Ezra is saying. Look, you're going to have trouble, and it's going to keep coming future successive generations. In this world, you will have trouble. And then Jesus says, but take heart, friends, for I've overcome the world. What a good word. What good news. Yes, we have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world. So like the author of the book of Ezra, Jesus speaks of trouble to come. It's not unique to a certain group or a certain generation. It cascades throughout the generations. And he also speaks of Jesus' sovereign power over it. As does the Apostle Paul do the same thing for Timothy, his understudy, and us today. Notice what Paul encourages Timothy with in his second letter. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul encourages young Timothy, who's struggling against unrighteousness in Ephesus as he seeks to pastor that church there. Notice how he encourages, he, he, he helps him manage his, his expectations. It will go from bad to worse. 
evildoers will abound. But you, as for you, continue in the word. Continue in what you've learned and firmly been taught and have believed. Paul says, you're going to face opposition. But Timothy, continue in the word. That's your guard against the opposition. Continue in the word. That's what the author of Ezra seeks to do as well. In Ezra chapters 1 through 3, we see the power of God's word, <clears throat> excuse me, and we see the people's obedience to that word. So Ezra chapter 1, the return from exile was according to God's word through the prophet Jeremiah. You see it there in the first three verses of Ezra 1. Jeremiah 29 verses 12 through 14, this glorious problem pr promised to the people of, in exile. O exiles, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, all the places where I've driven you, where you've been in exile. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. That's the prologue there in Ezra chapter 1. The prophet Jeremiah's promise, the Lord's promise through Jeremiah that the people would return. In return, they did. They hear the word. They trust the word. And then in chapter 2, the people confront these illegitimate priests who don't have the priestly pedigree, but yet they're trying to serve disobediently anyway. And they lean into Numbers 16, verse 40. No one outside the lineage of Aaron shall serve as priests. And what do they do? They exclude those people. They're obeying the word of the Lord. They're continuing in the word. And then Alex preached last week, chapter 3. Notice how... They're so deliberate in setting up the, the altar in accordance with the law of Moses. The people are continuing in the word of the Lord, trusting and obeying it. The author of Ezra is helping us see chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Continue in the word of the Lord. You are safest when you're trusting and obeying the word of the Lord. And that's how you need to face this opposition that arises in chapter 4. Continue in the word. Trust and obey God's word in the face of opposition. That is the only way that we today can face opposition. How do you survive the onslaught of opposition, discouragement, affliction in this life? Cling to the word of God. We're desperate for his life-giving and sustaining word. Cling to it with all your heart, all of you, all of you have. For it abides. It sustains you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Cling to the word. It's what sustains us. It's what lasts forever. Cling to the word. Opposition is not unique to you. Confront it by continuing in God's word and rest in the fact that God is sovereign over it. We must see God's sovereignty in our affliction. God's sovereignty is all throughout the book of Ezra. I want to provide, as we close, a little medicine for your soul. If God sovereignly moved the heart of a foreign king, Cyrus, to release the Israelites from captivity and to provide everything they need for the rebuilding, can he not sovereignly move in the midst of their every opposition, protecting, providing, paving the way? Yes. Yes. Trust in the sovereignty of God. That's, that's the, the message here in Ezra. God is sovereign over every bit of your opposition, affliction, and suffering. 
He is the one who superintends it and bends it for his purposes. He accomplishes good things through our affliction. Do you believe that? It's a hard truth. God is behind all of it. What would be terrible news and cause for despair is pointless affliction, meaningless opposition. That would be cause for despair, but that's not how the world works under God's reign. He has purpose and meaning behind our every opposition, our every difficulty, our every suffering. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, wrote this about God's sovereignty and our suffering. And here's a man who knew suffering, the depths of depression for most of his life, mornings he couldn't get out of bed, gout in his foot so bad he couldn't walk. A powerful preacher indeed, but one who knew suffering, barely could get out of bed many days. Spurgeon writes, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, not sent to me by his arrangement, knowing their weight and their quantity. If you drink of the river of affliction near where it pours out upon you, you will find it bitter and offensive to the taste. But, but, if you will trace that river backwards to its source, where it rises at the foot of the throne of God, you will find its waters sweet and health-giving. As long as I trace my pain in this life to accident, my bereavement to mistake, my loss to another's wrong, my discomfort to an enemy, and so on, I am of the earth, earthly, and shall break my teeth with gravel and stones. But when I rise to my God and see his hand at work in my affliction, there, there, I find peace. God is sovereign over your every suffering, your every affliction, all of your opposition. He superintends it all and has power to bend evil for our good. That is the God we serve. Do you believe that? You need it. On your darkest day, you need to believe that, that he's behind it, working in it and through it. Trust him. And we see this in the finest hour, the finest display on the cross. Jesus. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. God delivered him up according to his foreknowledge, his plan. You crucified by the hands of evil men. God took the intent of evil men, Jews and Gentiles alike, who conspired together to crucify the Lord, but it was in accordance with his sovereign plan all along. He used that wretched day to accomplish glorious salvation in anybody who will trust in him. God has the power to take things that are evil and bend them and produce things that are good. He has the power to take our opposition and affliction and to do good work in our lives. Seek the Lord in the midst of your suffering and opposition. See his good hand at work, and there, there you find peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, your mercy, and your sovereignty. (laughs) 
we need you. As we sang earlier this morning, every hour we need you. I pray that you would help us, no matter the opposition that we face in this life, trying to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be opposed, we will be persecuted. We understand and expect suffering and difficulty. In this world, we will have trouble, but may we take heart because you, Jesus, have overcome the world. And we look to you, we trust in your purposes, encourage our faith, and help us to press on for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.